Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled, A New Chapter for Oral Precision Therapies in Thyroid Cancer, RET Inhibitors, is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this educational activity, new chapter for all precision therapies in thyroid cancer, RET inhibitors. My name is Hyunsook Kang. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. First, a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development, and my financial disclosure information. Here are the learning objectives for this activity. We expect uh, our participants to uh, better able to describe the evolving evidence rationale and role of genomic testing in risk prognostication and the clinical impact of integrating this testing into practice for guiding therapy selection for thyroid cancer. And analyzing the outcome data for RET inhibitor therapy in clinical trials, including patient morbidity and mortality and the implication of these results in clinical practice. Third, develop treatment plans for patients with red fusion positive thyroid cancer based on latest available clinical evidence, best practices, and guideline recommendations. And finally, apply the efficacy and safety of new emerging red targeted therapy options for thyroid cancer patients with red rearrangement into treatment strategies and to offer patients a better quality of life. Today, I will be reviewing the overview of red alterations in thyroid cancer historic treatment approaches and need and rationale for newer therapies, approved and investigational agents for red altered or red-driven thyroid cancer, importance of molecular diagnostic testing, long-term oral therapy compliance considerations, resistance challenges, and we'll have a brief virtual case clinic and wrap up and reinforcement of key learning points. Let's begin with overview of red alterations in thyroid cancer. Proto-oncogen rearrangement during transfection is the full name of RET, and it is a receptor for glial cell-derived neurotrophic factor, GDNF family of ligands. It is a key molecule for organ development and tissue homeostasis, and activating mutations and chromosomal rearrangements can cause constitutive activation of this gene. Medullary thyroid cancer is a form of thyroid carcinoma arising from parafollicular T cells that produce calcitonin, and it accounts for less than 5% of thyroid cancers in the US with an estimated incidence of 0.21 cases per 100,000 population per year. About 25% of medullary thyroid cancer, which is also called MTC, occurs as a hereditary monogenic autosomal dominant disorder as part of MEN2 syndrome, and this mutation happens in germline. So patients were born with these mutations and are predisposed to development of MTC. About 55 to 85% of patients with MTC have somatic red mutations, which means that they acquire this mutation later in their life. And M918T mutation is the most prevalent, found in up to 40% of cases. Activating red fusions are seen in papillary thyroid cancers and other thyroid cancers. And this fusion can occur in 10 to 20% of patients with papillary thyroid cancer. This uh, event uh, locates the red gene adjusted to uh, the different gene which are constitutively active. 
And um, this alteration is most common in papillary thyroid cancers occurring after radiation exposure. And this can be also present in poorly differentiated thyroid carcinoma and anaplastic thyroid carcinoma as well. Historically, we've been treating thyroid cancers with total thyroidectomy and neck dissection if needed. And this still remains to be the preferred treat treatment option. And also at, at the time of re local regional recurrence, surgical resection is preferred followed by radiation therapy. We do use systemic therapy for thyroid cancers when there's a uh, metastasis or recurrence. And the, for medullary thyroid cancers, there are two multi-kinase inhibitors that have been approved by FDA. Bandotinib was investigated in comparison with placebo and demonstrated overall response rate of 45% versus 13% seen in placebo and medium progression-free survival of 30.5 uh, months versus 19.3 months. Another multi-kinase inhibitor, cabozantinib, was also investigated in comparison with uh, placebo. And in, in, in a clinical trial, cabozantinib demonstrated overall response rate of 28% versus 0% in placebo arm, and median survival, median progression-free survival of 11.2 months versus 4.0 months. For differentiated thyroid cancer, we use multi-kinase inhibitors after radioactive iodine treatment uh, fails. So this, uh, these drugs have been investigated in context of radioactive iodine refractory disease. And um, two, currently three drugs are approved by FDA, and two drugs are approved in the treatment naive setting with multi-kinase inhibitors. First one is sorafenib, which was studied uh, in comparison with placebo and demonstrated overall response rate of 12.2% versus 0.5% in placebo with median progression-free survival of 10.8 months versus 5.8 months. Lembotinib was also uh, investigated in RAI refractory patients and treatment naive with MKI and showed overall response rate of 64.8% versus 1.5% in placebo arm and median progression-free survival of 15.1 months versus 3.6 months. More recently, cabozantinib was studied for patients who had prior treatment with multi-kinase inhibitor, either sorafenib or lembotinib. And uh, this was a, a randomized study between placebo uh, and cabozantinib. And there was a uh, crossover allowed upon progression. And this clinical trial showed superiority of cabozantinib in terms of median progression-free survival, uh, which was not reached at the time of analysis versus 1.9 months with placebo. And overall response rate was also uh, shown to be 15% versus 0% in placebo arm. So currently, sorafenib and lembotinib are approved for patients uh, who had, have radioactive iodine refractory differentiated thyroid cancer who are treatment naive with MKI. And cabozantinib is approved for patients who had prior line of multi-kinase inhibitor therapy. However, these agents cause significant treatment-related adverse events and that limits their tolerability for patients. Generally, these agents target VEGFR pathway and causes hypertension, proteinuria, decreased appetite, electrolyte abnormalities, and hand foot syndrome. 
So these side effects typically leads us to do dose reduction for these agents, which limits their uh, clinical utility in patients with thyroid cancer. Now let's move on uh, for approved and investigational agents for red altered or red driven thyroid cancer. Selpacotinib is a highly selected red inhibitor and it is given by mouse at 160 milligrams twice daily. It is approved for metastatic red fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer, advanced or metastatic red mutant positive medullary thyroid cancer, and advanced or metastatic RAI refractory red fusion positive thyroid cancer. Celtacotinib was studied in Libretto 001 study, which was a multi-arm uh, phase one slash two study and uh, was investigated in red fusion positive advanced or metastatic thyroid cancer and red point mutation positive advanced or metastatic medullary thyroid cancer. The efficacy results showed dramatic overall response rate in red muta mutation positive medullary thyroid cancer, overall response rate in patients who was were previously treated with vendotinib, overall response rate for patients who had not previously treated with vendotinib or cabozantinib was 73%. And red for overall response rate for red mutant positive MTC previously treated with vendotinib, cabozantinib or both was 69%. Also, selfacotinib was uh, shown to have response rate of 71% in red fusion positive thyroid cancer. This was uh, studied in 19 patients, who, who, which included one patient with anaplastic thyroid cancer and two patients with poorly differentiated thyroid cancer. In an updated analysis of Libretto 001 study, uh, this preliminary analysis uh, results upheld. So this was a update results with a longer follow-up and additional enrollment. And the results still suggest the response rate of 70% with uh, multi-kinase inhibitor naive patients and 77% in red fusion positive thyroid cancer. There is a phase three study, which is called Ribretos 531, evaluating sulfacotinib compared to carbozantinib and mandatinib in kinase inhibitor naive uh, medullary thyroid cancer patients is on, currently ongoing. Let's look at the safety and adverse events data of the Liberato 001 study. Generally, Tepacotni was well tolerated with few grade four AEs. And most common AEs that was shown more than 40% of patients were dry mouth and hypertension. And less common uh, adverse events, uh, which were seen more than 30% of patients were diarrhea, nausea, constipation, headache, elevated, liver enzymes, and peripheral edema. So generally, sulfacotinib was very well tolerated. The second agent, which is approved for red fusion positive thyroid cancers, is sulfacotinib. This is a highly selective red inhibitor, which is also orally administered at 400 milligram once daily. It is approved for metastatic red fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer, advanced or metastatic red mutation positive medullary thyroid cancer, and advanced or metastatic RAI refractory red fusion positive thyroid cancers. Perseltinib was studied in the ARROW trial, which is a phase two multi-arm study. 
which included red mutation-positive medullary thyroid cancer and red fusion-positive other cancer arms. In arrow study, overall response rate for multi-kinase inhibitor pre-treated MTC was 60%, and overall response rate for multi-kinase inhibitor naive MTC was 71%. And response rate for patients with red fusion-positive thyroid cancers, and in this trial, all patients had RAI refractory differentiated thyroid cancer, um, it was 89%. Arrow trial also showed a very favorable safety profile for prosopnip. Generally, this was very well tolerated with few grade four AEs. And uh, most common adverse events, which were seen more than 40% of patients, were anemia, musculoskeletal pain, constipation, elevated AST, and hypertension. To summarize, comparing salpacatinib and prosopnip, both agents are orally administered. Uh, there is a slight difference between sulfacotinib and prosopnib, as sulfacotinib is given twice daily and prosopnib is given once daily. Response rate of both uh, agents were similar. TKI naive uh, medullary thyroid cancer response rate was of sulfacotinib was 73% versus 60% in prosopnib. TKI pre-treated MTC response rate was 69% versus 71%. And for red fusion positive thyroid cancer, sulfacotinib's response rate was 71% versus 89% in prosopinib, which are very comparable. The rate of grade three to five adverse events were 30% in sulfacotinib and 54% in prosopinib. And the most common ad adverse events were slightly different. Um, with dry mouth and hypertension in sulfacotinib, anemia, musculoskeletal pain, constipation, elevated AST, and hypertension in prosopnib. However, these are very minor differences. And uh, in summary, both agents are very safe, very effective uh, in red fusion positive thyroid cancers or red mutation positive medullary thyroid cancers. There are other investigational agents in Horizon. TPX0046 is a multi-targeted RET and SARC kinase inhibitor that demonstrated inhibition of RET with solvent front mutation. Selpacotinib and prosopinib were developed to, uh, to be active against gatekeeper mutations, but um, for, with solvent front mutations, uh, these agents are not expected to work very well. So uh, TPX0046 has been developed specifically uh, to deal with solvent from mutations in mind. And in a phase one study, three out of nine pretreated patients with non-small cell lung cancer and medullary thyroid cancer showed tumor regression. And currently phase two study for non-small cell lung cancer, MTC and red altered solid tumors are ongoing. Another investigational agent called BOS172738 is a highly selective oral RET and VEGFR2 inhibitor which demonstrated activity against gatekeeper mutations similar to selpacotinib and prosopinib. In a phase one study, overall response rate for red altered cancers was, was 31%, and overall response rate in MTC was 44%. And phase one dose expansion study for non-small cell lung cancer and MTC is currently ongoing. TAS0953 
slash HM06 is a second generation RET inhibitor with activity against a no, uh, known RET resistant mutation, including solvent front mutation, and a phase one slash two study for RET altered non small cell lung cancer and other solid tumors is currently ongoing. Preliminary results of this trial demonstrated potency against RET solvent front mutation resistance mechanisms. There are other agents in development, uh, including LOX18228 and LOX19260. These are potent and selective next-generation RET inhibitor targeting RET uh, gatekeeper mutation and solvent front mutations. And these are in preclinical development and uh, is expected to enter a clinical trial in 2022. So as a summary, highly selective RET inhibitors, selpacotinib and prosotinib demonstrated impressive activities and safety profile and are FDA approved for advanced and metastatic RET mutation positive medullary thyroid cancer and RET fusion positive thyroid cancers. Second generation RET inhibitors uh, that are active against solvent front and gatekeeper mutations are under development. Next, we will discuss briefly about importance of molecular diagnostic testing. There are several different ways to detect RET alterations. RET point mutations can be found in either drumline or somatic, and these mutations can be detected by quantitative PCR, Sanger sequencing, or next-generation sequencing. Quantitative PCR is a well-established test to detect point mutations, but it's limited to a single gene and potentially it has a very limited coverage of the gene. Sanger sequencing is also even more limited with low sensitivity and um, is not uh, very frequently used at this time. Next-generation sequencing has a larger, broader panel and can have a better sequencing depth. We'll discuss about this uh, later, more in detail. And red fusions always happen in somatic changes, and this can be detected by fluorescence in situ hybridization, which is called FISH. FISH detects fusions regardless of fusion partner, and but can have false negative results if the probe binds to area close to a partner gene. Reverse transcription PCR has a very fast turnaround time and sensitive, but this only works when we have a known fusion partner. So it does not detect unknown fusion partner. Next generation sequencing can detect fusions uh, with uh, a slight limitation. Um, it relates to the depth of sequencing, and we'll, we'll discuss more about this in later. Testing for red alterations in medullary thyroid cancer is recommended by NCCN. Um, NCCN recommends drumline red mutation testing for all new diagnosis of medullary thyroid cancer. 6% of patients with clinically sporadic MTCs also carry a drumline mutation in red, which means that we, uh, we, we can observe a red drumline mutations even in patients who don't have any family history. NCCN also states that red somatic genotyping may be done in patients who are drumline wild type or if drumline status is unknown. For differentiated thyroid cancer, NCCN guidelines recommend genomic testing to identify potentially actionable mutations. 
for example, ALK, NTRAC, and RED gene fusions, DNA mismatch repair deficiency, microsatellite instability, and tumor mutational burden for metastatic differentiated thyroid cancer. If you look at the biology of differentiated thyroid cancer uh, a little deeper, there are few well-known oncogens uh, uh, altered uh, uh, in, in studies looking at the genomic alterations. So NRAS mutation is seen in 8.5% of differentiated thyroid cancer. HRAS mutation is also seen in 3.5% of uh, differentiated thyroid cancer. RAS mutations are not quite actionable at this time, but um, in future, we may be able to develop an agent targeting these mutations. BRF B600E is a, a very well-known oncogen and is the most common mutation in papillary thyroid cancers. Thyroid cancers are known to have generally low, a very low mutational burden, but there are uh, quite frequent fusion events uh, with red fusion being the most common at 6.3% of DTC and other fusions including BRAF, PIPA-gamma, ALK, and TREC are uh, seen in differentiated thyroid cancer. Also, comprehensive genomic profiling may provide prognostic information for DTC patients. It is known that BRAF mutation positive DTC has poor prognosis of overall mortality of 5.3% uh, in BRAF B600E positive patients versus 1% in BRAF B600E negative patients. If you look at BRAF and TERT mutation status at the same time, dual mutant patient has the poorest prognosis, whereas patients who do not have either of the mutations has the best prognosis. So having the information for mutational status can provide prognostic information for patients. Comprehensive genomic profiling um, can be done in several different ways. Um, common way of doing it is to perform targeted DNA sequencing, which sequences selected cancer-related genes using DNA only. And some test platforms offer targeted DNA and RNA sequencing, and it sequences selected cancer-related genes using DNA and RNA. And RNA sequencing provides uh, more sensitive, provides more information for fusion detection, including unknown fusion partner. So it can be more sensitive to detect fusion events. Whole exome sequencing sequences the entire protein coding regions. And um, it can provide a broader panel, but um, there could be limited in terms of sequencing depth. And um, it can be also classified by specimen types. Tumor profiling uses tumor specimen from biopsy or surgery, or this Profiling can be done with uh, blood, which we call a liquid biopsy. And this test platform uses circulating tumor DNA. And drumline sequencing uses normal cells, and we frequently use uh, white blood cells for this. Uh, so for drumline sequencing, frequently the sample type that we need is uh, blood collection. If the sequencing is only done for the tumor, uh, then the variant pooling is based on bioinformatics pipeline, as we don't have a, a drumline sequencing information. Some platforms offer matched normal and tumor sequencing, 
and those platforms sequence both tumor and normal tissue and cause variants based on difference between normal genes and tumor genes. So generally matched tumor and normal sequencing is known to be more accurate in variant calling, but tumor-only sequencing uh, with extensive bioinformatics pipeline can perform as well as match normal tumor sequencing. When choosing an assay, we should be cognizant of assay type. And medullary thyroid cancer patients need germline testing and potentially genetic counseling, as uh, a significant portion of them can be hereditary. And MTC patient without germline mutation and other thyroid cancer patients need tumor genomic profiling, which is mainly uh, somatic sequencing. And also, um, and uh, no, next generation sequencing versus PCR slash FISH. Um, PCR and FISH has a significantly faster turnaround time, but generally next generation sequencing is preferred given the depth of information that is available, available through the test. Targeted cancer, cancer gene sequencing is more co uh, commonly performed than whole exome sequencing because whole exome sequencing is more expensive and may not achieve sequencing depth as well as targeted sequencing and can be less accurate in detecting low frequency alterations. RNA, RNA sequencing is uh, preferred when uh, we expect to detect fusion proteins, especially uh, when you're suspicious for fusions or with unknown partner, RNA sequencing can provide the most accurate information. We'll turn to uh, considerations for long-term oral therapy compliance. In, in the major difference between sulfacatinib and prasalcnib is once a day versus twice a day. And there might be a concern of compliance uh, in this treatment regimen. In research, adherence to oral cancer therapy has been a problem, and a systematic literature review suggests that the rate of adherence to oral cancer drugs can be as low as 46%. And factors associated with non-adherence include complex treatment regimen, substantial behavior change required, inadequate supervision, and poor communication. Both selpacotinib and prosopnib have relatively simple, consistent dosing schedule. One is twice a day and the other is once a day, but um, it is easy to remember, and both have very favorable safety profiles. And if you look at the discontinuation rate for toxicity, selpacotinib was, uh, uh, had 2% rate and prosopnib had 4% rate. So both treatments are very well tolerated and and compliance was uh, uh, really good. Next, we'll move on to resistance challenges. Resistance to RET inhibitor was a mainly studied in RET fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer. And there are a few mechanisms of action, which include acquired alteration in other genes, such as MET or KRAS amplification, acquired mutation in RET G810, uh, which is a solvent from mutation that we discussed. And there's gatekeeper mutations, but both alpacotinib and prosalcnib are active against red gatekeeper mutations. If you look at the pattern of progression-free survival, 
both the pakatnip and persotnip achieve very high progression-free survival at 24 months. And comparing that curve to bandatnip or carbozantnip, it doesn't seem like that uh, the, these highly, resist, uh, highly specific red inhibitor uh, uh, is associated with development of more resistance compared to previous generation multi-kinase inhibitors. There is a question whether dual or combination therapy uh, would be more effective. Dual, dual therapy may be more effective. However, dual or combination therapy will certainly increase toxicity and may impact treatment tolerability. And alternative oncogen amplification may allow for resistance to dual combination therapy, as tumor always can develop alterations in a bypass pathway. Hello, I'm Dr. Hansap Kang, Associate Professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm joined by Dr. Johan Lorch, Professor at the Northwestern University in Chicago. We are going to discuss a patient case example to highlight the use of RET inhibitors in clinical practice for the treatment of advanced thyroid cancer. We brought a case of 42-year-old female who is a never smoker and experienced chest pain and palpitations, and her cardiac workups were unrevealing. She had CT scan, which showed a few pulmonary nodules and mediastinal lymphadenopathy. And she had EBUS FNA of hyalur lymph node, which showed metastatic adenocarcinoma, most likely of thyroid origin. She then had a neck ultrasound, which showed multinodular diffusely heterogeneous bilateral thyroid gland. Left thyroid gland is markedly and highly vascular, heterogeneous, and multinodular, with borders of nodules difficult to discern. She does not have any significant medical history, but she did live very close to Chernobyl as a child at the time of the nuclear disaster. She's a never smoker, no regular medications, just NSAIDs from time to time. Here's her images uh, of chest, uh, her chest, which showed uh, um, distinct mediastinal uh, lymph nodes and hyla lymph nodes. And uh, on the ultrasound, there were multi, uh, multiple nodules throughout the thyroid. She then had an FNA of thyroid, which showed papillary thyroid cancer. So she was staged as T1B, N1B, M1 papillary thyroid carcinoma, and was referred to endocrine surgeon and endo endocrinologist. At the time of the diagnosis, her thyroglobulin level was 7.4 microgram per liter, but she did have anti-thyroglobulin antibody a titer, which was pretty high. So, Johan, this is a uh, uh, first question. What do you recommend next for the treatment? Radioactive iodine ablation, total thyroidectomy and central neck dissection, PET scan and brain MRI, initiate neoadjuvant therapy in anticipation of subsequent surgery. What would you do? I'm unsure. <laughs> I would choose. <laughs> now, uh, I think, uh, I mean, this is an unusual case because most cases in you know, young women in, with thyroid cancer are uh, thyroid nodules that are diagnosed because of some, uh, because a scan was obtained or perhaps because of, an, uh, of a physical exam uh, to find somebody with a relatively small primary tumor and such widespread disease is, is very unusual. Um, nonetheless, uh, the histology is papillary thyroid cancer, um, and um, it seems that it was uh, a well-differentiated uh, type. So with this, um, my choice would be 
uh, a total thyroidectomy and central neck dissection for two reasons. First, to take the tumor out, although in this case, where you have widely metastatic disease, taking care of the primary tumor is probably not so that, that big of a priority. However, mm-hmm. uh, in order to use radioactive iodine, you have to get rid of the thyroid tissue first. Uh, and uh, so, so then I would say thyroidectomy is, is the treatment of choice. Uh, but you're achieving with a central neck dissection, you could probably argue about uh, because it's, that's not going to change the extent of the tumor, but you're already there, so you might as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, would be my choice. I was tempted uh, to also uh, get a PET scan. Now, I think the brain MRI would be would not necessarily be recommended at this stage, but mm-hmm. with such widespread disease, um, and, and again, with this unusual pattern of a relatively small primary tumor uh, and, and, and um, multiple areas of distant metastatic disease, I I would I would I would have also um, uh, um, ordered a PET scan. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Actually, that was uh, uh, in line of uh, with my thought as well. I uh, in, intended to uh, choose total thyroidectomy just to remove thyroid so that we can use radioactive uh, iodine ablation. I agree with you that central neck dissection might be controversial, but since we are there, I thought that it would be reasonable to complete the staging with doing the neck dissection. PET scan, I think, would be useful. There are some data suggesting that uh, PET avid disease is less iodine uh, uh, avid, but I think you know we, we still would need to give a benefit of doubt and probably use radioactive iodine anyway for this young lady with uh, differentiated thyroid cancer. Any other uh, point to add? Yeah, and, and then the, I mean, as as you mentioned, there's this inverse relationship between PET avidity and iodine avidity. Uh, so you learn something about the biology through a PET scan, but then also you would uh, see. I mean, it's such widespread disease; uh, it might be worthwhile also taking a general look if those mm-hmm. if those tumors are PET positive. Then you might detect other areas of disease that could potentially cause a problem. Yeah, yeah, yep, I agree. So she did have total thyroidectomy at, uh, at next, and um, the pathology showed papillary thyroid carcinoma, classical type, and tumor was involving right and left lobes, measured 2.7 centimeters at the largest, and there was microscopic invasion into extracytoidal soft tissue. And she also had chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis on the background. So this was staged as PT3CN1BM1, and um, following the AJCC staging, she's still stage two because um, she's younger than age 55. And um, with M1 disease, she's classified as stage two. So next step, what, would, what should we do for systemic therapy? Should we do lembotinib, sorapinib, radioactive iodine ablation, send tissue for pdl one testing? Yeah. So... Um... I mean, now that the thyroid gland is out, you definitely want to give radioactive iodine a shot. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, it's a very aggressive thyroid cancer, so I'm not sure how much uh, radioactive iodine will be effective under these circumstances, um, but it's, it's, it's relatively easy treatment, uh, and um, you would... Um, 
you would want to, um, you, you know, that, that would definitely be something to consider. Um, the question is, you know, should you also get a diagnostic radioiodine scan to make sure that there's uh, sufficient uptake uh, just because of the unusual biology? Um, but that could be, that's, that's debatable. Mm -hmm. So, Johan, is, is your standard practice to get radioactive iodine dosimetry before RAI ablation? No, not routinely. Um, but it, again, this is an unusual case, uh, and one could uh, could consider it, especially since you're also um, dealing with uh, a fairly high volume uh, of disease. Uh, you want to increase. You, you want to treat with a you know reasonably high dose. Um, there's lung metastases. Uh, so it might be some dosimetry might uh, might be useful, uh, but again, that's it's debatable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and as far as the other options goes, uh, you know, obviously for lenvatinib and serafinib, we have not established that this is an mm -hmm. iodine refractory tumor, uh, and uh, for sending tissue for PDL1 testing, there's there's a very uh, very limited uh, experience with. Um, uh, immunotherapy in differentiated thyroid cancer. Uh, generally, the response rates tend not to be very high. And again, with while you have the option of treating with radioactive iodine, which is a one-time treatment, pretty well tolerated, uh, that's what you would uh, try first. Mm -hmm. I agree, yeah. So I uh, intended to uh, use radioactive iodine as we have extensively discussed. So that's where we are. And um, so um, she did have radioactive iodine treatment, and she did have a fairly high dose of radioactive iodine, 375 microcurie. And post-therapy scan actually showed multiple areas of uptake in left cervical lymph node and mediastinal lymph nodes, but not in the long lymph nodes, I mean, long nodules. So then two months later, she um, complained of new lower back pain. And she had CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and showed uh, a new lytic lesion in sacrum and iliac bones, as well as multi-level vertebral body lytic lesions. So now she has clear evidence of progression. What would you recommend for systemic therapy? Start lambotinib or serafinib. Start immunotherapy with pembrolizumab. Initiate chemotherapy with doxorubicin. Send tissue for NGS testing. Yeah, uh, now it gets interesting. Uh, you know, one one of the difficult parts about uh, treating patients with um, with with thyroid cancer is that um, sometimes it's difficult to decide whether or not there is actual disease progression. Uh, so, and from from the imaging that we've received so far, uh, I'm not sure if we've so far imaged. Uh, the the lumbar spine, uh, where there are now these uh, where she has pain and where um, she has uh, these these uh, lytic metastases. Now on scan, this they do seem quite extensive. So I think something should be done about them. But I think the question whether or not you would um, treat these as uh, an area of painful uh, metastases, bone bone metastases. Uh, and treat with a course of radiation versus mm -hmm. starting out with systemic therapy. 
is is also is not is not an easy question to answer. Uh, uh, again, right. you know, these these lesions could have potentially, um, unless there is imaging from previously, uh, the, you know, these these lesions could have been there already. No, unfortunately, this care was done before I saw her, so um, this was actually what happened. But um, let's assume that uh, we had baseline images which didn't show this, and she had radiation yeah. to uh, to palliate. Then the next, uh, as a next step, what uh, would you prefer to do? Would you start with uh, lymphatic borosarfenib, or would you do uh, NGS testing? Yeah, I mean, she clearly needs. Uh systemic therapy uh, and, mm -hmm. and soon uh, because this is obviously very aggressive, very rapidly progressing. And uh, so I think uh, starting the FDA approved standard of care, lenvatinib or serafinib, I typically prefer lenvatinib um, because of the um, efficacy data, uh, although the two drugs have never been compared head to head. So, we, so both are reasonable choices. Again, my preference would be lenvatinib. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, it's definitely uh, the right moment to uh, send for next generation sequencing uh, to determine if there should be, a, which, which the next steps could be. There are, is this tumor BRAF uh, mutant? Um, typically, pathologists can tell by the appearance of the, of the, of the, of the tumor under the microscope whether or not uh, these are BRAF positive. There's also immune histochemistry that could be used as a, a quicker way to determine whether BRAF is is even a, a, a BRAF inhibitor is even a consideration. Um, but then also um, a next generation sequencing to detect um, fusions and other more rare uh, abnormalities such as uh, red fusions, N-track fusions. Uh, would be uh, would be reasonable to initiate, especially since uh, getting the results back typically takes uh, between two and eight weeks. Does her history of uh, radiation exposure as a child make you more suspicious for one genetic alteration over the others? That's a good question. So, um, from from my experience and from what I uh, read and talked about uh, with uh, or um, heard from other, uh, my heard from my colleagues, I find that um, some of the uh, N-track uh, fusion ones and also the red fusion positive cases often have sort of this very unrelenting um, pace of uh, progression, although they don't. In, at least, I, I don't think there's any published data, but um, they, I, I'm not sure if they tend to be um, more aggressive than other cases of differentiated thyroid cancer, um, and especially, you know, as aggressive as if, if this is um, a typical case for the the level of aggressiveness for one of these uh, one of these cases. So in general. By experience, usually you cannot tell based on uh, based on the clinical history alone. Um, again, pathology uh, there is there are features, uh, just uh, tall cell features, and and some other abnormalities uh, that typically indicate whether a tumor is BRAF mutant uh, or not. 
but uh, for these more rare uh, alterations, RET and NTRAC, um, it's typically without a next generation sequencing, that's typically very difficult to tell or impossible to tell. Right, right, right. I've seen a, uh, reports of cluster of uh, red alterations in uh, survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I was alluding to that. Um, but she did have uh, NGS testing and uh, that did show two different red fusions. So red NCO, uh, NCOA4 red fusion and red NAALADL2 fusion. And she did also have a third promoter mutation and FGFR2 mutation. Uh, MSI stable, um, PDL1 was very high. Tumor pro TPS score was 95%, but tumor mutational burden was very low, zero per uh, megabase. And um, she did start with palliative lenbotinib immediately, given the symptom burden, and she tolerated about uh, after one dose reduction. But soon after, she had restaging scan, which showed multiple new lytic bone lesions and new liver metastasis. So now what, we sh what should we do? Should we switch to serapinib, switch to immunotherapy given high TPS score, or switch to sulfacotinib or praselpinib, or switch to chemotherapy? Yeah, I mean, luckily there is a red fusion that uh, was detected. Um, and um, this is um, yeah, actually one of the more typical ones. So, um, so I think a, a RET inhibitor would be a logical next choice. Uh, this is um, this is not, this is again this is an unusually aggressive um, case. Um, Lenvatinib also, you know, often does work quite well even in these red uh, fusion positive cases. Uh, so that um, overall, um, the biology seems to be uh, very unfavorable. And, um, and, and I think the, the prognosis with or without red inhibitors uh, is probably somewhat, uh, somewhat guarded. Uh, now, with respect to the high PDL1 expression, we don't, we don't know how well um, PDL1 expression correlates with response to immunotherapy in thyroid, in differentiated thyroid cancer. There are some indication that uh, in anaplastic thyroid cancer there is a connection, uh, but in differentiated thyroid cancer that is um, that is not established. Uh, and as I mentioned before, responses are somewhat unusual, uh, so that uh, that alone would not um, sway me to use uh, immunotherapy at this point. It may be a useful um, treatment down the road, but currently uh, I would not use this. Do you think there is any role for chemo at all if uh, case, case is unusually aggressive? Yeah, that's also a good question. So yes, I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, I think there are some uh, you know, doxorubicin, uh, and in some of the more aggressive ones, uh, traditional standard chemotherapy, like uh, platinum-based uh, with with the taxane, carbotaxel, for example, um, does have does have there does have a certain level of efficacy. However, that's relatively low. Uh, in the case of doxorubicin, side effects are uh, significant. Um, so it's actually been 
a long time that I that I've used traditional chemotherapy in a case like this. Yep, same here. So thank you. So um, she was started on sulfacutney and started experiencing significant improvement in back pain after she started the drug. And CT scan after two months showed very good partial response with more sclerotic bone lesions. So this story ended as a happy ending. And I think it hi highlights the, um, the, the need for NGS and uh, molecularly targeted therapy for specific genomic alteration. And I do uh, want to discuss a little bit more about two different options for red uh, altered thyroid cancer. So we do know that there are sulfacutinib and prasalpinib in the same space. So Johan, um, do you have any preference or any um, opinion on differences? And I do not. Uh, I, I use them uh, alternatingly. So one patient I treat with sulfacatinib, the next I'll treat with pralzatinib. Uh, and I have not noticed any major changes in terms of efficacy uh, or side effect profile. Um, so I am. Uh, I I like both drugs, um, but uh, so far, uh, yeah, and I'm 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 using both. Um, well, on paper at least, uh, QT prolongation was seen on sulfacutinib and not much on prasalpinib. Is that what you see in the, uh, the the actual practice as well? Yeah, um, rarely. Um, I've seen it, but uh, again, I find um, if I, I've not come across a case where I had to um, alter the dose, for example, that would probably then be um, uh, be a you know a reason to switch to the other drug. But again, so far I have not encountered that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, I've had a patient who had um, pneumonitis developed for prosopnib and then switched to sulfacutinib and still maintained a good response. And um, patient developed QT prolongation switched to prosopnib who maintained the response very well. So I do agree that two drugs seems to be very comparable in terms of efficacy, but there might be a little bit difference in terms of toxicities, but you know, I don't think we have enough data. So, um, well, I think the key takeaways from today's case discussion was that um, somatic uh, NGS testing, including RAT, should be considered for all uh, RAI refractory differentiated thyroid cancer. And sulfacutinib and prasalpinib are highly selective red inhibitors with favorable safety profiles that are FDA approved um, and um, should consider as an option for red fusion positive thyroid cancer. Any, um, anything else to add? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, obviously these, these treatments, as good as they are, uh, they're not curative. And the question is always, what are you going to do after uh, one of these drugs fails, do you switch to the other drug um, from sulfacatinib to prozatinib or the other way around? Um, there is also a number of uh, second generation RET inhibitors that are in development. Uh, if you have access to those, that would be often a, a relatively easy, cho easy choice. Um, the, other, the other part is that um, in differentiated thyroid cancer, uh, 
the duration of response seems to be quite good. In anaplastic thyroid cancer, which were also included in uh, these studies, um, for the most part, the duration of response was relatively disappointing. Uh, so um, it's definitely uh, a treatment that you should, you could, or you should try. Um, but I think with, um, in, in, but but again, there there are limitations. Uh, and and in the case of anaplastic thyroid cancer, um, I think there are perhaps other treatments that I would use uh, before, such as immunotherapy, uh, which in anaplastic uh, thyroid cancer tends to be tends tends to work rather well. Um, but otherwise, I, I agree. I mean, this is a big big step forward, uh, especially compared to the traditional multi-tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, you can typically tell when you walk into the room whether uh, a patient is on uh, one of these red-specific inhibitors versus one of the older uh, broad-spectrum TKIs, such as lindatinib or serafinib, just because of the way they, they look and feel. Great, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. So in summary, key takeaways from this presentation. First, germline right mutation testing should be performed for all patients with newly diagnosed medullary thyroid cancer. Second, somatic NGS testing, including RET, should be considered for all patients with medullary thyroid cancer with wild-type germline RET and all patients with RAI refractory DTC or polydifferentiated or anaplastic thyroid cancer. And third, selpacotinib and prosalpinib are highly selective RET inhibitors with favorable safety profile and are FDA-approved options for RET mutation-positive medullary thyroid cancer or RET fusion-positive thyroid cancers. Solvent front mutations can confer resistance to selpacotinib or prosalpinib, but second-generation RET inhibitors to overcome the limitations are under development. With that, I would thank everybody for participating in this activity. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.